This year's annual J.R.R. Tolkien seminar will be bringing a woke sensibility to its discussions of Lord of the Rings because participating academics are afraid there may still be areas of artistic achievement and audience enjoyment that haven't yet been ruined by their stupid and immoral ideology. Millions of readers around the world who have been delighted by the intricate fantasy world Tolkien constructed out of a potent mixture of learning, faith, and imagination can now look forward to having their delight crushed to fragments, then ground into the dirt, then crapped on, then mocked, then ground into the dirt again by mirthless, politicized hacks who will spend the seminar presenting such academic papers as Gondor in Transition, A Brief Introduction to Transgender Realities in Lord of the Rings, and Pardoning Soromon, the queer in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, Clavin, you Johnny Appleseed-like disseminator of flowering hilarity, what an antic fancy you must harbor within that unnervingly attractive body that you could make up the sort of ridiculous titles for academic papers that highlight the absurd narcissism of today's liberal arts professors, as well as their clownish stupidity, thus making us laugh uproariously at the same time we daydream about what it would be like to be stranded for three days on a desert island with you, a skimpy negligee, and a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild. Hey, that would certainly be special. But no, in fact, I did not make the names of those papers up. They are real. And also, I don't own a negligee. The director of the Tolkien Seminar, Professor Felix Schmageggi, explained the reasoning behind the woke approach in an exclusive taped interview with one of the Call Me Girls on Shaggle.com. Professor Schmageggi said, quote, For decades, readers of Tolkien's work have been losing themselves in a kind of rapturous wonder that can often distract them from me and my small-minded and unfounded political opinions. The fact is, there is no conceivable reason I would spend my life studying Lord of the Rings except to use it as a means to glorify my own unoriginal ideas and obnoxious personality. We must not remain silent while the novels cast Gollum as a disenfranchised other simply because he's a hairless monstrosity who lives in moral darkness, whispering twisted schemes of evil to his shadow self. After all, that describes almost every college professor I know, unquote. This year's Tolkien seminar will be held this weekend online so that Tolkien fans around the world will be able to turn the sound off so it doesn't distract them while they're rereading Lord of the Rings. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. All right, we are here with the special 4th of July program of the Andrew Clavin Show, in which we will celebrate our independence by having the Republic actually collapse on screen while I'm talking. Um, Maybe we won't do that. I don't know. But listen, if you have not signed up, if you have not subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts and given it a five-star review, please do that. It helps us enormously. Uh, it makes our ratings better. It makes it easier for us to get ads. It makes us easier for us to come back and keep on the air. Also, you want to go on YouTube, the Andrew Clavin channel on YouTube, and subscribe to that. If you press the little bell on that, you'll hear ringing in your ears for weeks afterwards. Uh, and it kind of, it's kind of sexy after a while, so please do that. And if you leave a comment and the comment is sufficiently ignorant and uh, racist, we will run it on the show. 
because it'll just fit right in seamlessly. Uh, today we have from Lol Lilpop. Lol Lipop. He says, I told <laughs> I told my wife to put some pearls and heels on and then make some pies, and that she was a nice piece. But before she found another pan to throw at me, I said, Rock Auto. We had pie that night, all night, and then more pie in the morning. I think she's now pregnant. <laughs> that's that's disgusting. I'm so sorry. I read that on the air. But that's the kind of that actually happens. Those things actually happen when you listen to the show. Uh, so stay tuned. It's going to just get uglier from here. You know, I can't do this show alone. I am backed up by a huge staff of producers and technicians and artists. And every time I look at them, I think, God, I wish I'd use ZipRecruiter. If you're a business owner who's hiring, you probably face a lot of challenges when it comes to finding the right person for your role. That's why hiring can feel like trying to find a needle in a haystack. You can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along. I tried that and look at the results. That's why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites with one click. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. It's no wonder over 2.3 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So don't be like me. Don't let your life be just a chaotic uh, dumpster fire like this show. Go to ZipRecruiter while other companies overwhelm you with way too many options. ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for, the needle in the haystack. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. It's the smartest way to hire if you know how to spell Clavin, which is K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no you know, I'm sure that many of you have heard the uh, Yates poem, The Second Coming, which includes the famous overquoted line, uh, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. The best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. And we're always complaining about this, right? We're always complaining the left always wins and they're always on the march and the right never fights back. And why don't we learn to fight and Republicans are useless? And why is an evil ignoramus like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez so clearly energized while Mitch McConnell talks like this, you know? So why does that happen? Why does it happen so often that we feel that the left is on the march and we are kind of just fuddling around trying to play defense all the time? Now, for one thing, I've, I've talked about this before, but one thing is we are asking politicians to do the difficult thing, uh, which is to build freedom by taking less power from themselves. That's not what politicians normally do. It's not what Government normally does. Government, it's the norm for government to grow. It's the norm for people to be, uh, to lose power, to lose their liberty, uh, and to slowly be taken over by government. So, you know, conservatives are trying, always trying to climb uphill. We're fighting uphill bat battle uh, while leftists are kind of surfing downstream. They're in the rapids going downstream. Oh, rot and, you know, government uh, taking over all the power. Uh, that's just perfect. We'll just float right down to that. And I've always said this, you know, that socialism, leftism is a form of decay. And so we are like doctors trying to keep that decay at bay, knowing that everything made by mortal hands will die and everything that lives will die. And freedom, liberty is a living thing, whereas tyranny is just the norm. It's just that kind of, you know, when things flat line when somebody dies and the meter
computer suddenly goes beep. You know, that's that's what socialism is. Socialism is the norm of death. It's life is something that you work for. Death is something that happens to you, uh, whether you like it or not. And that's the reason we're always kind of uh, working uphill. But the mechanism by which decay and death come to a country is almost always connected to the disease of self-deception a tendency uh, to tell ourselves things that make us feel good about the world or that make us feel that there are more possibilities in the world than there are, but that are just simply not true. When you're building a society, when you're building a civilization, you're kind of inoculated against self-deception because necessity is everywhere, right? You can't pretend that all family arrangements are equal uh, when you're struggling for your life. There's only It's only one family arrangement that actually works when you're doing that, or you can't pretend that the world owes you a living. You know, I have a, I have a right to health care. I have a right to health care. You know, you're li- when you're just lucky, you don't have an arrow in your forehead. You know, that's, you know, I have a right not to have an arrow in my, you know, it just doesn't work when necessity is all around you. You can't tell yourself all these lies. You can't parade as if the world, uh, you know, like everybody's equal or someone isn't the strongest or someone isn't the best. You can't uh, give participation trophies when you're fighting for your life. But once a civilization becomes rich and happy, it's lying. Hooray. It's lying time. Lying time has come, you know, and what the left has learned to do is they've learned to hide their positive lies behind negative half truths. And what I mean by that is this is the whole basis of critical theory, right? It's whether it's critical race theory or critical gender theory or critical whatever theory it is. It's always critical. It's always criticizing things. And of course, you can always criticize everything. Everything's imperfect. Everything's unfair. Everything uh, has, has flaws and is not what it should be. So you can criticize everything. But the minute they start talking about what their uh, actual philosophy is, what their positive assertions are, then the lies come out. And that's when they get caught. That's why they're trying to pretend that critical race theory isn't what they say it is, because they actually got caught teaching something uh, that's more than criticism, that's not just criticism, that actually is an attack. It's racism. It's just racism. And so they get caught on that. I want to read to you, so what I want to look at for a, for a couple of minutes is I want to look at the underlying assumptions of the left's criticisms. What are the underlying assumptions of the left criticisms, and what's the, what is the lie that's hidden in those underlying assumptions? I want to read you something from C.S. Lewis, obviously the great Christian apologist of the last century, uh, a man who really defended the, the Christian soul of the West uh, during World War II uh, and went on to just really just unpack a lot of Christian, basic Christian theology in just a, an incredibly clear way with a clarity that amounted to genius. And he wrote a famous book called The Screwtape Letters. For those of you who haven't re- read it, I recommend it highly. It takes about 40 minutes to read. And it's a series of letters from a senior demon, uh, Screwtape, to, who is trying to educate a junior demon on how to steal people's souls. And that was written during the height of World War II, around 1942. Uh, But in 1959, during the height of the Cold War, Lewis published a sequel called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. And this is Screwtape getting up and making kind of after-dinner speech uh, about how to steal souls en masse, how to ruin societies en masse. And it's really an attack uh, on the educational system and how C.S. Lewis thought communism uh, was working its way into the West through the educational system. And so he's talking, this, this is a demon talking about how to ruin civilization. And he's tell, teaching younger demons what they want to do. And this is what he says. It's, a, it's a, a, a lengthy little passage, but I've condensed it as much as I could. 
He says, democracy is the word with which you must lead them by the nose. It's a word they venerate. And of course, it's connected with the political ideal that men should be equally treated. You then make a stealthy transition in their minds from this political ideal to a factual belief that all men are equal. As a result, you can use the word democracy to sanction in his thought the most degrading of all human feeling. The feeling I mean is, of course, that feeling which prompts a man to say, I'm as good as you. No man who says, I'm as good as you, believes it. He would not say it if he did. The St. Bernard never says it to the toy dog, nor the scholar to the dunce, nor the employable to the bum, nor the pretty woman to the plain. The claim to equality outside the strictly political field is made only by those who feel themselves to be in some way inferior. Sounds like Pride Month, right? And when people say they're proud, it's because they're not. C.S. Lewis goes on. He says, he therefore resents the man that we're trying to corrupt, therefore resents every kind of superiority in others. He denigrates it. He wishes its annihilation. Presently, he suspects every mere difference of being a claim to superiority. Now, this useful phenomenon is by no, no means new. Under the name of envy, it has been known to the humans for thousands of years. Under the influence of envy, those who are in any way or every way inferior can labor more wholeheartedly and successfully than ever before to pull down everyone else to their own level. What I want, Screwtape says to the young demons, he says, what I want to fix your attention on is the vast overall movement towards the discrediting and finally the elimination of every kind of human excellence, moral, cultural, social, or intellectual. And I read this, obviously, it just seems to me to be a perfect description of what is happening today, what the left is doing now. If there's inequity, it's because of bigotry. It can't be because somebody is working harder or because people's lifestyles are bringing them down. It must be because there's bigotry. If you criticize my sexual lifestyle, uh, you're a bigot. It couldn't be because maybe there are some good ways to have uh, sexual relations and some bad ways to have sexual relations. And if you think that twerking or violent rap or globalism uh, are bad, it must be because of the race of the person pushing them. If you don't like globalism, it's because George Soros is a Jew. If you don't like twerking, it's because uh, a black artist is doing that. Cardi B is doing it. So you must be racist. It couldn't possibly be because nation states are better. It couldn't possibly be because twerking is degrading. And what's fascinating about this is in order to defend this attack on excellence, and that's what it's, it is, it's an attack on excellence, the left has to come up with this horrifically racist idea, this racist and, and sexist idea, that the things that aren't working in a, in a culture are actually belong to that culture. So they'll say things like uh, black communities uh, are in dysfunction because of uh, single parenthood, because of uh, the, because fathers don't stay in the home. And they'll say, well, that's black culture. You can't criticize. But what are you, racist? But there's nothing black about that culture. That wasn't always true. That's a result of policy. It happens to be the result of Democrat policy that, f that paid people to have children out of wedlock. Or if you say that uh, you, you know, you should use good grammar. They say good grammar. That's racist. You know, black people can't use good grammar. They, they have their own grammar that 
It's absurd, right? It's absurd. Grammar is an agreed upon thing in a civilization. It changes over time, but a civilization, a society has a grammar so that we can communicate clearly. And good grammar is a, a way of communicating cre- clearly. Uh, they, they've even said that, uh, you know, black people can't uh, learn math because the idea of a right answer is a white concept. Objectivity is a white can- concept. Here's a K through 12 New York teacher, a New York teacher who teaches K through 12, talking about how you have to teach black people. It's cut 20. Black people, we are relational people. Mm-hmm. We are people of context. Like it's very Western and European to to dissect and analyze and take apart things. Whereas mm. Afrocentric schooling or Afrocentric spirituality or African epistemology or ways of knowing, everything is connected. So this is why education is not working for so many students of color because we are context-driven people. It couldn't be because the teachers won't go back to work. It couldn't be because their progressive means of education don't work for anybody. But a white, uh, a wealthy family, never mind a white family, just a wealthy family with parents in the home can correct what the teachers are doing in school. It couldn't be any of those things. It must be because it's black culture not to think clearly. That's absurd. It is absolutely absurd. But it's just an attack on excellence. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about. It is an attempt to wear down using the idea of democracy, but not the truth about democracy, uh, to make people feel, hey, anybody who's better than me must be doing something wrong. You saw this with the rioters after George Floyd's death, uh, the mostly peaceful rioters who destroyed city upon city, uh, who tore down statues of truly great men like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Christopher Columbus, really interesting, exciting men who made the world better and made the world more expansive. And then they erect statues to who? To George Floyd, a career criminal. What does that say to people? You know, because his skin is black, that makes him a representative of black people. They don't want to build a statue just, oh, maybe Clarence Thomas or maybe Frederick Douglass or maybe, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell. No, you're going to build him to George Floyd because then you don't have that problem of excellence. And and then, of course, you know, the George Floyd statue was uh, desecrated. And everybody's, this is horrifying. Although it wasn't horrifying when they were desecrating the statues of great people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. The charge of racism, to some degree, is really just a manifestation of way of getting to this place where they are attacking excellence and and basically saying that excellence is a white thing. We're not going to practice excellence. It's not fair. It's not fair. That's your right white privilege. But it's wrong. It's not true. Anyone can be excellent, but they have to follow certain paths to get to that excellence, the hard path. It's about behavior. The underlying assumption to this, right, is that if we take away all these differences, if we take away difference, just like C.S. Lewis said, then we're all going to be wonderful. We're all going to be wonderful. It's the idea that we want to have a democracy because we're all so wonderful that we should each have a say. We should each have an equal say. But that's not why we believe in democracy. We believe in democracy because we believe that we're all so corruptible. Every single one of us is so corruptible that none of us, none of us should have that much power. That, that's the true equality that people have. We're all corruptible. Just about every one of us is corruptible. Power corrupts everybody. So we want to spread the power around. What they are doing is they're looking for a way to bring the power together. They want to get those power centers in their hands, and they do it by saying, look at the unfairness, look at the unfairness. But the underlying assumption of, of the criticism is that they know something better. They can do something better. And when you start to examine what that better is, it is always consolidating power in their hands. The same thing is true with sexuality. It's not just race. It's not, you know, there was a, a an article in the 
Washington Post, Lauren Rowello, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post celebrating the fesh the fetishism of gay pride parades, right? And she says, oh yeah, I want to take my kid, my kids to see this. I want them to know. And she says, she says, a bare chested man whose black suspenders clipped into a leather thong paused to be spanked playfully by a partner with a flog. And she wanted her children to see this because they were celebrating who they were. I should mention, by the way, that Lauren Roello's husband uh, is now her wife, uh, he transitioned. Uh, I assume he has his genitals removed and was uh, given estrogen. He must have transitioned from a Republican to a Democrat. Uh, but she's, so she's obviously no, no great defender of, uh, you know, sexual sanity. Right. So she's teaching her kids this. But what is the what is the underlying assumption? She actually says that this is who you are. If you want to be spanked by your partner, this is who you are. And I, I want to address that for a minute, okay? Because obviously nobody cares what people enjoy in the bedroom if you do it behind closed doors. It's, not, it's absolutely nobody's business. But the thing about a fetish, right? A fetish is the inability, the inability to have sex unless you have some totem uh, or some behavior going on. And almost always, I believe, a fetish is caused by trauma in your life, in your past. So if you were beaten in your past, you may have now confused love with pain uh, and you now have a fetish for pain and you can't have sex unless you have pain. So, wh- so what's, what's wrong with that? Well, it's not like, oh, it's a sin. You're going to hell. God doesn't like it. That's not the point. The point is, it, it actually is, instead of using sex for its purpose, which is the purpose of connection and creation, that's what sex is for. It is co- to connect with the opposite, is to create babies, so it's therefore to connect with the opposite sex and and uh, develop a, uh, a an intimacy and love that you don't have with anybody else. And so you say to me, well, I want to connect with my own sex. Okay, all right. But if you say you want to have this fetish in your life, what you're doing is instead of doing that, you're just re- you're just repeating the trauma of the past. That's what a fetish is. I think it's a, rep- a repetitive trauma. So you're actually going back into the worst part of your past and living it over again. And I don't think that is the healthiest way to have sex. I'm, I'm not even saying you can cure it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm simply saying you should understand you have a disorder. It's a disorder. It's a it's a it's not who you are. And who you are may have nothing to do with that. Who you are may be so much better than that. And yet, okay, you're pinned with this fetish, and that's the only way you can have sex. Again, it's not a judgment on you. It's not a judgment on you because that's not who you are. So the the underlying assumption here is that you are just this piece of meat and what that piece of meat wants or doesn't want is what defines you. And that is utterly ridiculous that we are defined by our desires. uh, And our underlying assumption is, is quite different. The underlying assumption of the right, the positive assertion of the right, is that we are defined uh, by our relationship with our creator, uh, that we are, that really is, even though even people on the right who say they're atheists actually believe this, that we are defined with our relationship and what we were made uh, with what we are made to be. And that relationship is always lacking. We're not never quite what we were made to be. All of us know this. All of us know that there is a better version of ourselves that we are aspiring to. And we aspire to that. And sometimes aspiring to that means setting your desires aside or rising above your desires. Sometimes uh, it means denying yourself your desires. And, and sometimes it means uh, keeping things private that have to be private, because if you're parading your fetish around, it means you're ashamed of it. You're just trying to pretend that you're uh, proud of it. The, I, the point that I'm trying to make about this, though, is these are our underlying assumptions. Our underlying assumptions are difficult. They are unpleasant. There are ideas that you are corrupted by power. There are ideas that power, uh, that there is no system that is going to change you. And therefore, the best thing to do is to leave you 
uh, let you handle your life alone and be responsible. That's a hard idea. It's a difficult idea. The, the idea that your uh, desires define you and therefore no one should be able to criticize your desires and you should not criticize your desires. And yeah, it was great that I wound up in a men's room and then was beaten up and was mugged. I, you know, I was just following. That's who I am, man. You know, I mean, that's easy. It is all so easy. Why? Because it is heading downward into entropy and death. So the easy path is always the path uh, of, of decay. It always is the path of decay. Life is always this energetic thing. So when we look at things and we say, why is it? Why is it that the uh, the, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity, it's because the worst are doing the easy thing. Of course, they're passionately intense about it. While the best, the best people are striving towards something and it's hard and it's hard and it's doubly hard when you live in a society that doesn't appreciate it. That the culture that created Mozart and Shakespeare and Jefferson and uh, Isaac Newton is not better than a culture that creates blankets and pots, that never gets out of its huts, that never rises above uh, primitivism. Because that's, uh, you know, because it's undemocratic to say so. It's undemocratic to say that Mozart and Shakespeare and Jefferson and Newton and the Constitution and science are better, are better than primitivism. That's undemocratic, that's cruel, that's racist, that's not fair. It is an absurdity that means essentially you have to stay in mediocrity and primitivism forever, lest ye be uh, an insult to those who don't have those things. Instead, instead to say, oh, let me let me look at this and aspire to that. Let me try and be that. Let, even if I can't be excellent, let me look at the excellence uh, and become better in myself. That's an effort. That's a hard thing to do. You know, every now and again, I like to play this uh, cartoon that was made right after the war called Make Mine Freedom. It's 1948, uh, and it was an anti-communist cartoon, and it shows all the different factions in American life, the workers fighting with the bosses and the farmers fighting with the politicians, and everybody's fighting with each other, and it's all chaos. It's the chaos of freedom, but along comes a snake oil salesman, and he has something to sell. This is cut 15. Hurry, 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 step right up, folks. Here's the answer to your problems. Dr. Utopia's sensational new discovery, ISM. ISM will cure any ailment of the body politic. It's terrific. It's tremendous. Once you swallow the contents of this bottle, you'll have the bountiful benefit of higher wages, shorter hours, and security. Enormous profits, no strikes. Remember, you're the big boss. Government control, no worry about votes. Name your own salary. Bigger crops, lower costs. Why, ism even makes the weather perfect every day. So he says, he says, right now, this special offer, we're giving this away free. All you have to do is sign this contract, and here's the contract. I hereby turn over to ism incorporated everything I have, including my freedom and the freedom of my children and my children's children, in return for which said ism promises to take care of me forever. <laughs> so the idea that freedom and all the benefits of equal treatment under the law come arise from a culture of excellence and arise from the excellences of that culture, uh, that, that those are the things we have to have before we become free, before we become scientific, before we become wise. The restrictions, what happens is the restrictions on government that we put on government, 
because we've learned these things. Create a government that seems like a good thing and create the ultimate fantasy of the left that there is such a thing as government, this, this kind of amorphous power that is going to do benevolent things to you. There is no such thing as, as the state or government. There are only people, there's only people with power. And if you don't control those people with power, they will just start to convince you that they should have all the power. It is excellence, it's thought, it's reason, it's objectivity, it's good grammar, it's all those little things that we do that are excellent, that keep people free and give you the things that you want, that you actually want. And they fade away when you start stop practicing excellence only to prove what is simply is not true, that you're as good as the next guy. None of us is that good, but some people are excellent in some things, and those are the people we should hold up and follow and so that we can become, if not excellent, at least free. So I can only dream of protecting my home because I don't have a home. I have nowhere to live. But if I had a home, oh, oh, if I had a home, I would protect it with a ring security system. You want peace of mind anytime, knowing that your home is protected. And if anybody comes to the door, no matter where you are, like if you're on the road living in your car like me, even if you're in your car, you can look at your app and with the ring alarm system, you can see who is at your door. Uh, Talk to them, find out what they want to get ring alarm for yourself. Go to ring.com forward slash Clavin. That's the perfect way to start your ring experience. It, it, it really is a terrific way, an inexpensive, uh, affordable way to put a complete home security system and install it yourself. I would do that if I had a home. With, with Ring, your family can keep an eye on your home, and I would be able to do this too if I had a home, no matter where you are. Start protecting your home today with Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com slash Clavin to get your Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. That's ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. No matter where you are, if someone comes to your home, you look at your app and you say, how do you spell Clavin? And if they know the answer, call the cops. You know, because freedom requires excellence and because excellence requires energy, uh, there is a question of whether we even want to be free, whether we want to take the trouble. I mean, I think that's what happened to the Roman Republic. When the Roman Republic fell, I think they were just done. They were just done with being free. and It was just easier uh, to stop getting the government to work, to stop making the Senate come to decisions. Uh, it was easier to have a princeps, as they call them, the emperor, uh, figure things out. And then, in fact, for the first, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years of the empire, things went better than they did before. And people were actually, in some ways, in some ways, every way but the political way, in some ways, people were freer under in Augustus and Rome because they had, they were ready to give up, as, as the satirist Juvenal uh, said, they were ready to give up their vote for bread and circuses, for welfare and shows on Netflix, basically. That was what they were doing. It seems right now that the China, the China and the Communist Party are on the rise. They are celebrating their, I think it's today or, yeah, I think it's today. They're celebrating their hundred year anniversary of the party, not of their rule of China. Uh, though they're coming up on having ruled China for, I think, 74 years, something like that. But this is their hundred year anniversary of the party. And uh, it's really interesting because it is now morphed as as socialism always does every single time, as communism always does. It is now no longer really a communist party. It is just an absolute party of power. It's essentially a fascist party because it allows certain free market uh 
principles to apply, but it controls everything. And if you have three party members in your company, then there's got to be a party. Uh, you know, you've got to have let the party meet. And basically, the party controls every aspect of life, including social life. And they have a system uh, for working your social ranking that is incredibly tyrannical, incredibly intrusive. And of course, they put people in prison camps and they uh, abort children without the mother's uh, permission and all this stuff. They're, you know, they're, they're a tyranny state. Um, they have no tolerance for dissent. Um, their social credit system, that's what I was looking for. The social credit system uh, gives you privileges based on conformity and adherence to the party. Uh, they put people in re-education work camps and they're trying to export this system to the rest of the world. And they're doing really well in Australia. Uh, Australia started to uh, call for an independent probe into the origins of COVID-19 or the Chinese virus, as we're not supposed to call it, uh, or the Wu flu or the Kung flu or the flu Manchu. And they called for that. And so immediately China banned exports from a number of Australian beef facilities and placed an 80 percent tariff on Australian barley. Don't you dare call for any investigations over there. And of course, we know that they have completely taken over some of our companies, uh, Disney and the NBA, uh, Comcast Universal is Han, 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 sorry for saying Taiwan was a country. They cannot make a movie that says that tells the truth about China because China will shut them down. And the, the thing about it is, is just how willing our corporations are to do this. Google got caught developing a censored search engine uh, for the Chinese market. I can't remember. It's called Firefly or something like that or Dragonfly, uh, maybe Dragonfly. And they intercept, uh, called them out. And uh, they said, oh, we, we've shut it down now. But they're slowly working their way back into the Chinese market. Uh, the, you know, it's, and we see, you know, there's this guy, uh, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Munger, uh, the, Warren Buffett and his friend, is it Robert Munger? I quite can't remember his name. Uh, but it, they were interviewed the other day and they said, oh, China is doing great. Here's two guys, billionaires, right? Absolute billionaires. And they said, you know, we made a lot of money, but that's Charlie Munger, Charlie Munger. We made a lot of money, but that's not why we did it. We wanted independence. We wanted to be free. We wanted to associate with anyone we want. Oh, but China is doing everything right. Here's uh, Munger talking about it. Jack Ma is one of the swingers. So they just cut his, they said, the hell with you. He basically got, gave a speech when he said to a, to a one-party state, well, you guys are a bunch of jerks don't know what you're doing, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it better. And he was going to wade into banking and no rules and just do whatever he pleased. He also but brought banking Chinese, to a lot of The Chinese communists people. did the right thing. They just called in Jack Ma and said, you aren't going to do it, Sonny. And... and uh, I wish we had a, I don't want the, all of the Chinese system, but I certainly would like to have the financial part of it in my own country. So, so here's Charlie Munger who got rich. He's talking about Jack Ma. Jack Ma is the Charlie Ma. He's a big businessman in China. And he, China started to clamp down on the banking system, started to clamp down on the uh, financial system. So Jack Ma made a speech about it. Jack Ma hasn't been seen since, I don't think. He's disappeared. We don't know whether he's been kidnapped or whether he's maybe, they just suggested he disappear. But that's, they love that. Munger and Buffett, they think that's great. They want independence for themselves. They got rich so they could be independent. Independent, but not, but it's independence and for, for them, but not for you. And so I really wonder, like, you know, just how much, you know, when you, when you have a system uh, where 
Twitter knocks you off uh, their platform for talking about Hunter Biden's laptop because they want to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't win the election. Or if you say the election was dishonest and there's plenty of evidence that there was fraud, uh, you get shut down for that. If you think global warming is not a crisis, which is another way the government gains power by causing panic about global warming, uh, then you're shut down. You're not allowed to call it global warming because the world is not always getting hotter. So they call it climate change. If you said the uh, Chinese virus started in the Chinese lab, you get shut down. If you say men can't become women, you get shut down. So if you can't speak, if you can't speak, uh, that's that's the Chinese system. That's the system that these guys, these rich guys want. And there's a question about half the country thinks, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. You know, that's all right. That's what gives Donald Trump so much power. That's what gives Donald Trump so much power is because he's here's Donald Trump. He had a, had one of his rallies. Thousands of people show up at these things. The guy isn't president anymore. He's nobody anymore. He shows up at these things and, he, and here's something he says, cut 13. They planned it out. Earlier this year, the Biden administration issued new rules pushing twisted critical race theory into classrooms across the nation and also into our military. Our generals and our admirals are now focused more on this nonsense than they are on our enemies. You see these generals lately on television? They, they are woke. They're woke. That's that's why Trump is powerful. That's why people show up for Trump, because he speaks. He says the things that he sees. Listen, you know, they're talking about him running again. Friends of mine who know him say he will run again. And I'm not so happy about that. But you, now they're moving to stop him by basically investigating his company. They indicted uh, his the Trump organization's finance chief, Alan Weisselberg, and they perp walk this guy. They handcuff him and perp walk him for Basically, they're, what they're claiming is that he received perks, you know, hotel rooms and cars and all this stuff, and didn't pay taxes on them. And they call this, oh, it's a major scheme to avoid taxes. Well, this happens a lot, and the uh, and normally the guy isn't arrested. He's not indicted. They fine him and all this stuff. But they're perp-walking this guy. They're going to basically put the squeeze on him, hoping he turns over Trump. This is third-world dictatorship stuff. Why, why are they so afraid of him? Why are they so afraid of him? Not because he's an authoritarian because he wasn't. I don't even think he was a particularly good statesman. I mean, he was a good politician, but he didn't get a lot accomplished in terms of passing laws because he was so mean to people. They wouldn't vote for him. He couldn't form coalitions. But still, still, they're so afraid of him simply because he calls them out, simply because he speaks the truth. So now they have Maggie Haberman. And I love Maggie Haberman. She covers the, she works at the New York Times. Uh, she used to be working at Politico, and when they hacked into Hillary Clinton's emails, they found one that said, uh, what did they say? We feel that it's important to go with what is safe and what has worked in the past. They're trying to spread news, good news about Hillary Clinton. We've had a very good relationship with Maggie Haberman at Politico over the last year. We've had her tee up stories for us before and have never been disappointed. So the New York Times hired her to cover the White House. And here's her telling you exactly why they're indicting people in the Trump organization, because she thinks they hope they hope and she thinks it will stop Trump from running again. Here she is. He will be much older. He is not a young man. So there's that on its own. And then if he is dealing with, and this is an if, but if he is dealing with the reality of a trial in, say, 18 months and, and the New York uh, court system moves pretty slowly, it's hard to see somebody running for president with a trial playing out about how their company did business uh, with potentially damaging testimony. I think this, I understand that there are some people who want to argue this provides rocket fuel and yes, this will make him run again. I've heard that from a number of Trump aides. I'm not convinced that that's the case. You know, the attack on excellence, the encouragement of dysfunction, uh, all of this is a 
are symptoms of a society, a, certainly an, a failed elite that doesn't want to lose its elite power, but that is so accepted by so many people in the uh, populace is also evidence of a country that may not wish to do the work that it takes to be free anymore. That's what we're going to have to see. And on our side, listen, when I say I, I don't want Trump to run again, it's because I don't think uh, Trump will win if he runs again. I could be wrong, but I do want Trumpism uh, to uh, remain around. And I think the best thing Trump could do is to basically uh, select somebody to represent his philosophy in the world who is a little bit better at the inside politics of governing. Uh, that would be good because it's not about Trump. It's not about anything except freedom. It's not even about right or left anymore. It really is about do we believe that human beings, individuals, the ordinary man and woman should be free? Coming up later in the mailbag, we have a really interesting question about alpha males. And the answer is simple. You want to be an alpha male, you got to go to rockauto.com. Not only does rockauto.com give you any kind of part for your car you might need at a price you can afford with an easy, easy system, an easy online site, but it's called rockauto.com. So you get to say to your wife, honey, I'm going to rockauto.com. You will see she will fall over. She'll be so impressed. And you will be the alpha male you've always dreamed of just by going to rockauto.com and finding great parts for your car at prices you can afford the easiest way possible. Do not get into your car and drive to the auto parts store. Why? Your car isn't working because it needs a part. So instead, go on your computer and say rockauto.com like a real man and get the part you need right away. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you and say Clavin that way. So you got to stick to it. Clavin. And then you got to spell it. K-L-A-V-A-N. So as you know, we like to elevate the show or class up the show a little bit by bringing on excellent guests. But today, just for a change of pace, we thought we'd go in the opposite direction uh, and bring on Michael Knowles, uh, the author of a the best-selling, the number one bestseller in nonfiction in the country, whether the New York Times will admit it or not, uh, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Now, not everybody knows this, but the pinnacle of Knowles' career before this was imitating me on Twitter. This is absolutely true. This is how Knowles became part of the Daily Wire, is I needed somebody to pretend to be me on social media because I didn't want to do it myself. I asked my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation. Uh, if he knew anybody, he said, I'd have my fellow Yaley, uh, Michael Knowles. And Knowles was so brilliant imitating me on Twitter that seriously, I used to look at his tweets to see how I was supposed to sound. That was, <laughs> that was, and and how, how far you've fallen since that I know. Moment. That was the best job I ever had. I, I do think of all the jobs I've ever had, from Subway Sandwich Artist when I was 14 to today, yeah. you know, doing the show. And, the job I was best suited for was being you on Twitter. That <laughs> it, was, was it. it was a masterpiece. It actually, but it actually, in all seriousness, it actually made me think like that's a talented guy because that really sounds <laughs> like me. So I have. Uh, before we get started uh, talking about speechless and other things, yep. I, I have two things I want to say about it. One, one is. I was genuinely, I, I know I'm not allowed to say nice things to you, but I was genuinely impressed with the way you wrote this book. You no. actually put your back into it. And you no, know, it's so easy. You know, you have a popular show. You could have just put your face out there with, yeah. you know, the left sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, a hundred and one ways to <laughs> exactly. own the left. Number 72 will shock you. Yeah. All right. And instead, you actually wrote a book. I've now finished it. It's like a, you wrote a, a serious book about a serious issue, the control of speech and what it means. And it's, it's terrific, and I, ser I seriously recommend it. Having said that, yes. you and I have a fundamental, and have had for a long time, a fundamental disagreement about the way to proceed. 
And the thing that's interesting to me about that, I mean, we obviously two people are going to disagree about things, but the way that's what's interesting to me about this is that it kind of represents a division in the conservative world. Yeah. Uh, that's not just a division between old people and young people, in which case I would just say, well, you know, you're on your own because I'll be I'll be with Jesus. You know, <laughs> but it's not just that. It's an actual philosophical break uh, yeah. on the on the right. So I want to get to that. But first, let's talk about the book, because it's not just, you know, ranting at the left about political correctness. You actually have a theory, a thesis about yeah. political correctness. Yeah, it's not just ranting at the left about political. <laughs> yeah. It's also ranting at the right about <laughs> yeah, political correctness. Right. Yes. Uh, my thesis is that we have misunderstood what political correctness is. We, uh, we think it's been around for about 30 years. It's actually been around for about 100 years. And we think that political correctness represents a debate between free speech and censorship. I don't think that's what it is. I think that political correctness aims at the destruction of traditional standards. That is what it is after. And so it lays a trap for conservatives because conservatives react in one of two ways. Either you've got the squishes who just go along with it, right? Who just will use the, whatever the pronouns are, use whatever the new jargon is. They'll, they'll, they'll acquiesce. Obviously that helps the left win. But then you have the more stalwart conservatives, the ones who say they're free speech purists or free speech absolutists, the ones who say, I will not go along with this new standard. But in so doing, they tend to eschew standards entirely. They will say, you know, you say whatever you want, do whatever you want. Uh, either way, I think this permits the left to advance because what the left is aiming at is the abandonment of traditional standards. And that happens in either case. Mm. And because nature abhors a vacuum, the left's new woke codes fill their place. And I don't think this was always the way it was, but I do think for the past, at least the past 30 years, uh, conservatives actually took on a lot of the left slogans and premises yes. to, uh, to fall into this trap. And it's a subtle trap, and I don't blame people for falling into it, but it is the reason why, no matter how hard we fought against PC, I mean, Trump launched his campaign that said PC is the greatest threat to the country. And many people have been talking about it for longer. But it seems almost that the harder we fight against it, the more ground we lose. And so the reason you feel for that is because what some on the right are saying is uh, there should be no censorship. There should be no uh, limits on speech. And therefore, they're abandoning standards, which is what the left is after. That yes, that e to, to the, the debate between free speech and censorship, I, there's something to it, obviously. We, we, do, right. we do want to have a somewhat broad de uh, defense of free speech. Uh, we don't like being censored, but it's sort of an illusory uh, situation. It's a, a false dichotomy, I think. I think all speech regimes necessarily limit some things, in part because language is limited. Language discriminates one thing from another. Right. If, if Bruce Jenner is he, he isn't she. I, I suppose that's imposing a limit, on, a sort of censorship on people. But, you know, society will always have some things that are settled, that are beyond debate. Uh, Bill Buckley talked about this in 1966. He was debating the future of McCarthyism with Leo Chern. And a lot of people were shocked to hear about the future. Of it. Yeah. I thought that was in the past, you know. And Leo Chern said, Surely what is most important to both of us is the open society. The open society is so crucial. By the way, open society is the name of George Soros's foundation. This is a left-wing idea. And Bill Buckley said, well, he was actually sitting in chairs like this. And so he said, uh, no, I don't want society to be more open. No, I would like the society to be closed. I am an epistemological optimist, to use the unfortunate phrase, by which he meant we can know things, some things are settled, and he sees no reason to rehash 
the uh, rights of the Nazi to go speak in the public school or, or the rights of the communists to do that for that matter either. Some things will be settled and that will, in those limits, you will have the flourishing. Yeah, I mean, you know, when they talk about banning uh, critical race theory from schools, the left says, well, we should teach it. And I think, should we teach white supremacy? Yeah. No, you know, it's just racism is racism. Why, why right. do it? So fa fair enough. Now, just to, before we get to where I, where you start to lose me a little bit on the theory, um, you say this has been around for 100 years. Give me the can, the brief history of it so that people can, because this is important. It's important yeah. to know where this comes from. This was not one day somebody woke up and said, no. we should control speech. Give me, give me a quick rundown. The really condensed version. Yeah. Goes back to Marx. I know it's become cliche for conservatives to blame Marx for everything. He's but to you know blame what? for everything. He <laughs> is to be, is. Yes, he's responsible for a lot of bad things. He has a line that he writes to Arnold Ruga, which is, he calls for the ruthless criticism of all that exists. And uh, so he just wants to tear down everything, right? Uh, Marx fails. The revolution doesn't materialize. Turns out the oppressed masses don't really like his kooky theories. <laughs> and so his intellectual heirs, men like Antonio Gramsci, communist in Italy, uh, he realizes the revolution can't succeed unless the revolutionaries have some grip on the common sense. It won't succeed unless the radicals have cultural hegemony. He calls for a war of position. And not a war of maneuver, you advance and retreat, but a war of position where you take positions of power and then wield that power once you've got it. Even if your numbers are smaller, you can still wield disproportionate power. Uh, the Frankfurt School develops some of these ideas. Critical theory comes out of this. Critical race theory is a derivation of that. Uh, you see one Frankfurt School theorist, in particular Herbert Marcuse, rises up in the 1960s as the father of the new left, the student radicals. He has a, an infamous essay, Repressive Tolerance, uh, which says that the, you can't tolerate intolerance. And so uh, what we've got to do is basically censor all the conservatives and encourage speech from the left. The student radicals read Gramsci through the lens of Mao. Mao becomes very important at this time with the translation of the Little Red Book. They come up with this phrase, Rudy Dutschke in particular comes up with this phrase, the long march through the institutions. And they start to march. The, the feminists in the 1970s really developed this, particularly the Marxist idea of false consciousness. The idea that... Uh, the reason you're so happy, poor oppressed masses, is that you don't know how oppressed you are. So the radical women groups in, in New York would hold what I call wine and cheese soirees, <laughs> W-H-I-N-E. And uh, so these happy bourgeois housewives would come in and they'd leave miserable because <laughs> they would be awakened to their, to their misery. And it, it comes from this idea in an essay by Carol Hanish, Hanish that uh, the personal is political. All the settled things in our private life, they actually ought to be open to public and political scrutiny. Now we say, why, are every, why is everything so political? Why is the NFL political? Why are our running shoes political? Well, they used to be settled because we all agreed on it. It just wasn't up for debate. Then what these radicals did in the 70s was they opened everything up to debate. The personal became the political. And now we're trying to win that political battle so they can be personal again and no longer uh, debated over. It really explodes on campus in the 80s. Obviously, the university has always been an incubator of these ideas. Uh, you had the campus battles, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, as Jesse Jackson said at Stanford. Then uh, PC really explodes on the public uh, stage in the 1990s, a little bit of backlash in the 2000s. Then you have the advent of uh, big tech. Big tech starts to exert real censorship. I mean, they just censored the duly elected sitting president yep. on January 7th and 8th. Yep. Handful of oligarchs controlling speech in a republic. I mean, it's a really dangerous situation. And then you have the advent of cancel culture. 
which is just a, a, a form of ostracism and censorship along leftist ideological lines. I'm not saying no one has ever been ostracized. I'm not saying no one's ever been censored. In the 50s, you got censored and ostracized if you were a communist. Today, you get censored and ostracized if you're not a communist. Yeah. The, the fact of it hasn't changed. It's, it's just the standards by which you are ostracized or censored. That is what has changed. And that yeah. takes us to today. Yeah. As I, I was talking about this on the show today, that the, to criticize everything that exists is to secretly suggest that you have something better. Yeah. And the thing is, their better uh, idea is based on a, an illusion that yeah. there's such a thing as a state that is going to act benevolently instead of a group of powerful people yeah. who are going to act to secure more power, which is always the case. So here's, here's where our disagreement, I think, lies. It's just quoting from speechless, uh, controlling words, controlling minds. In a self-governing republic, speech is politics and politics is speech. As the realm of politics requires limits, so too must the realm of speech. By failing to acknowledge this practical reality, the so-called free speech purists give the game away to politically correct censors. Now, I'm not a free speech purist in the sense that I think that there are, uh, for instance, that Supreme Court decision that allowed a girl to curse uh, without being punished yeah. online, a high school girl. I, you know, I thought there was some sense to it, but I, I'm, I don't necessarily think foul language is part of free speech or burning a flag is part of free right. speech. I agree. Yeah. But the expression of ideas is, is part of free speech, yeah. I believe. And it seems to me that you're drifting toward the leftist habit. The left does this all the time. They start out by saying, uh, you know, racism is wrong. Whites should not be hating black people because racism is wrong. And they end up saying white people are terrible. Yeah. You know, they essentially, because they want the power that they see yeah. being done by the wrong, they essentially adopt the wrong. What, what you are essentially saying is the censorship is fine. They're just censoring the wrong things. Yes, I, I am. Yes. Though, well, I, though, but I'll, I'll defend it, which is, Chesterton has this great line. He says, there is a thought that stops yes. thought. And this is where we kind of agree. This is where the, the uh, Venn diagram. Yes. Yeah. There is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. Uh, there have been uh, obviously many exceptions to free speech in America. Fraud, threats, fighting words, obscenity, list goes on and on. Why those ex exceptions? Because those exceptions undermines, they are speech in a certain sense, but they undermine speech. If you have a protection for fraud, for instance, uh, then you can no longer rely on speech. If, there's no, if there is a First Amendment protection for deceit through your speech, then speech loses so much of its effect in the body politic. Uh, if you have an exception for threats, you are really encouraging people to silence other people. If I can threaten you, <laughs> then I am, I am shutting you up. I'm using my speech to overwhelm your speech. Obscenity is an even even dicier one, or it's a subtler one, but I think it's equally important. The reason there's no, well, the reason there didn't used to be a First Amendment protection for obscenity, increasingly it seems we're drifting in that direction, is because obscenity actually compromises your freedom. We now today seem to uh, conflate liberty and licentiousness. Our founding fathers did not, the, certainly from the time of the founding. Of you see all sorts of documents saying liberty must not be abused you to know, licentiousness. You know, I, I think you're actually ducking something here, if I, if I may, okay? Yes. Because I don't think those things are censored because they stop thought. I think they're censored because they're speech acts and they're wrongful acts. A speech act, as you know, is when the words you say actually perform a duty beyond just expressing an idea. So if I promise you I will pay you Thursday for the, if you give me a hamburger today, yeah. I am actually committing the, an act which is making a promise. Right, right. And if that promise turns out to be a lie, you have a right to come back to me and, yeah. and act against that. So firing a 
crowded theater, uh, threatening people, uh, yeah. committing fraud. Those are all speech acts. They're uh, a special kind, category. That's fair enough. What, what about uh, speech that uh, advocates for the Communist Party? I, in fact, would not, I'm not afraid of speech that advocates for the Communist Party because even though, even though I think that if you get in an argument, if you allow arguments between communists and non-communists, uh, the communists might win. Yeah. One of the things about freedom is it's very, very dangerous because the bad guys might win. I know in the past we have actually made communism illegal at, at certain moments. I can almost understand it if you are advocating for the overthrow, for the violent overthrow of which, the government. Which I think by definition you are. But if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're if you're if you're saying I, I'm a communist and I want to pursue a communist program, that entails overthrowing the government of the United States and and virtually every other government too. Well, it depends. It depends if you if you can make the argument that you are advocating for uh, socialism under as controlled by the Constitution. If you can make that argument, yeah. I think you should be allowed to make that argument. Sure, but I mean, even, you know, uh, Whitaker Chambers, right. one of our favorite yes. writers, yes, great writer. he, he makes a big distinction between this, those weak, silly socialists and the communists. And I, I'm not actually arguing that we ought to even censor socialists. or those, But I'm, I'm talking about this, this narrow exception, which, you know, on the books, pl- plenty of people were prosecuted for being communists. Yes. Which, but I'm using it to make the broader point. The communist is using his speech to undermine the entire free speech regime. It, it seems that there are certain... It, so are you. <laughs> but so, no, I think I'm using it in, in accordance with the, the broader history of the American. So, so that you want to protect free speech. You're, you're censoring yes. speech to protect free speech. Yes, I'm, okay. sen- I'm censoring. Okay. I'm putting certain limits on speech in order to protect free speech. I mean, this, this is why, for instance, John Locke famously says free speech for everybody except for atheists and maybe Catholics. Right? <laughs> right, right. Re- and I say this is a mackerel snapping papist. Yeah. John Milton said the same thing. Yes, in the did. Yeah. Right? Most famous defense of free speech in the English language. Everyone gets free speech, but not those papists. Why did he say it? Is it just because just he was stupid? Is it just because he didn't get it? Uh, no, I think he did get it. I think what he realized is there must be a bare minimum of understanding and shared thought to keep a stable regime that will permit the free expression of ideas. So, to ask the Thomas Sowell question, who decides? I mean, if you look at the people who have power in America today, yeah. can you name one of them <laughs> right. power to, censor, to decide which, which speech is harmful? Well, this, so this is my, my the, I think the practical, or the hypothetical objection that people very often make is if we permit there to be limitations on free speech, why they might threaten our free speech. And my answer is, We've already permitted that, and it's already happening, and we're already the victims of that. We're, right. They can kick the duly elected president off Twitter. They can do anything. No, you're, abso- yeah. no, you're absolutely right. But, but the question, that, that's, that's still avoiding the question. Well, no, but I'll, then I'll take it okay. even, even further. So, yes, I, I agree. Right now we're in this terrible position where the left is controlling our speech right. and controlling our minds and controlling yeah. our country. Yeah. And I, I want to fight back against that. So I can either fight back against that by saying, hey, guys, stop it. We shouldn't have any limitations on speech. Or I can fight back against that by reasserting the traditional American uh, limitations, the traditional American standards, and wielding political power to actually force them to stop using their political power against me. And my, my answer to it as well is there is the left right now, which is saying we're going to censor you and we're going to have hate speech laws and whatever. Uh, then I think there is the call it the libertarian answer, although, you know, this would be, this would have been a foreign idea to people like Locke or Milton, but call it the classical liberal libertarian answer of no limits at all. And then I think there is 
the very far sort of Catholic integralist answer, which is, how do we determine the limits? Submit to Pontifex. There you go. Now we've right. determined the limits. But I'm, I'm actually offering a different suggestion, which is a very naughty word that you're not allowed to say. Talk about censored words. Prudence. I think prudence is not only a virtue, I think it's the conservative virtue. And it's something that Edmund Burke talks about at great length. How do we decide what the, what the necessary and inevitable limits are? Because also part of my argument is not, we don't have limits, but we should. Part of my argument is we always will have limits. The question just is, what are those limits? So my, my prudential argument is, why don't we just look to the past? Why don't we look to what the, our forebears thought was reasonable? Why don't we look to what has worked and led to flourishing in America? I don't think anybody believes that today's speech regime is the best we've ever had in America. Because by the way, some people say we have way more free speech than we used to. Some people say we have way less free speech than we used to. It's kind of a little bit of both. I think we just have a different standards. And so I can say any of those George Carlin words on TV and I'd be applauded for it. But I can't say that a man is a man. And I could actually face many repercussions from the society. Soon enough, I might face legal repercussions for it. Well, for, first of all, going back, one of the reasons we can't go back to the past is because we don't live there. Yeah. And one of the things you had in the past, I mean, when, when John Adams said our constitution is for a religious people, the reason he said that is because you have to oppress people if they will not yeah. control themselves, right? I mean, if they will, if they are not responsible to a moral order, yeah. uh, you have to oppress them, right? That's yeah. that's how free regimes fall because chaos ensues, and as Plato said, and you know, then you need the strong man. Yeah. So, but once that, when people have stopped believing, when people yeah. have stopped holding themselves to a moral order then I don't understand how you impose the, the ideas of the past without oppressing them. One of the things, one of the things that strikes me is I, I think we're suffering from too much censorship even, even before this. Yeah. And the most important way I think we've allowed them to censor us is by taking religion out of the public square and God yes. out of the schools. So there's an, an area where the censorship, to me, paved the way for everything else. Yeah. So if, if our answer had been, no, no, wait a minute. The, you know, this is one of the key aspects of human life. We should be able to teach it and put forward. Yes, but I, I don't think taking religion out of the schools was, uh, you know, I guess this is kind of my central view of the whole thing is I don't think it's just along this scale of free speech <laughs> to censorship. I think when they took religion out of the schools, you had some free speech, free speech for Christians to pray, and you had some censorship. You were not permitted to espouse atheism in the schools or frankly anywhere else. When the Supreme Court decided to invent the constitutional prohibition on prayer, yeah. you just switched the standard. Now you were perfectly free to espouse atheism. Now it's effectively mandatory, but you were not permitted to espouse Christianity. So it, I don't. It was freer for some people. It was. It was. There was greater censorship for other people. And I think the religion point is very good because I totally agree with your point on on John Adams. One way. I mean, there there is a little bit of a paradox here. Because in order for people to be free, they need to be educated. That's what liberal education is, to make sense of your freedom and to tamp down all your base passions. But in order to educate people, you kind of have to coerce them. Well, that, that's true. But, yeah. that, but there are some things that you can do in a school, and especially in a public school, that you can't do anywhere else. And when yeah. you bring children into things, everything becomes a, a, lot, more, um, a lot more complicated. Yeah. But it, it strikes me sometimes that what you're trying to do is you're trying to the, the left took 70 years to march through our institutions, and yeah. they took them over. Yeah, yeah. And they took over our cultural institutions. They melted people's minds. They taught people ignorance and all yeah. this. And what you're trying to do is let's pass a law against that. In other words, you're trying to solve, you're trying to solve by the 
heavy hand of government, what the left accomplished by the hard work of taking over the culture. I think we need to do both. The left also accomplished it through the heavy hand of government, like when they banned prayer in the public schools. Well, right? but, they, but they did that through argument, right? They did that through winning in the, in the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I mean, some yeah. robed lawyers did. Yeah, I, right. I don't know if the no, arguments were No, that no fair good, enough, but, fair enough. But yeah. I mean, I, I just think, yeah, of course I agree. We need, uh, and I do not in any way advocate ignoring the culture. I think very much right. we need to infiltrate these institutions and retake them or demolish them in the case yeah, of the, yeah. those that have been so hollowed out. But, you know, Andrew Breitbart's slogan that politics is downstream of culture is true in as much as it's true. But like all slogans, it's also not true. <laughs> and by that, I mean, you know, all bumper stickers are wrong, all, course, but they're too course, simple. So yes, uh, culture influences politics, but politics influences culture. And the example I use on this is, uh, is Germany. West Germany is religious today. East Germany is atheist. It's 10% religious. Is that because of cultural variations in bratwurst or something? No, I think it's because of a, the political regime that dominated that was officially atheist. You're, you're now seeing cultural effects of that downstream. Uh, and, and I also think the line between politics and culture is a little blurry. Is uh, Facebook, Google, and Twitter, are they private in- institutions? Kind of. You know, they're also, they also kind of work with the government. And the universities, are they private? Well, they kind of work with the government, too. Well, here's, here's a place where I, th- I think we have a lot in common because I, I do believe our, <laughs> our philosophy, our national philosophy, is that our freedoms come from God yeah. and that the government is the governments are instituted among men to preserve those freedoms. If they're being taken away by Amazon, it's the same as if they're being taken away by the government. The government still has to preserve our freedoms in some way. Cocaine Mitch McConnell made this point. He said that these corporations are acting like a parallel government. They are. And and the left used to know this, by the way, when the government was, when the corporations tend to be on our side, when we had a manufacturing instead of an information economy, the, the, uh, corporations were on our side and right. the left, the, even with the word corporation, sent them really. I want to talk about the religious aspect about this because you've mentioned Catholics a number of times and much of this, this essential criticism of liberalism or, or even libertarianism. I, I'm not a libertarian, but, yeah. but I am a liberal. Yeah. I am somebody who believes in the free flow of information, the free exchange of ideas. I'm willing to risk my freedom yeah. on allowing people to have the freedom to debate even bad ideas. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I've, I have frequently said, there are some people who say, you know, the liberal, liberalism has, has failed, failed yeah. freedom has failed. And I say, like, if, if freedom sinks into the tar pit of history, the last thing you're going to see is my fist. Yeah. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, this is a good thing worth defending. It, it seems this movement is a, is a Catholic movement. About Patrick Deneen, Zora Bamari, you, you know, people saying that we have too much liberalism. Yeah. And I, I can't help but wonder if you're trying to solve a Protestant problem with a Catholic solution. That in other words, that I am. Yeah, you are. You are. That this is, I'm I mean, what, to solve the Protestant problem. <laughs> I mean, one of, yeah, because one of the reasons we have so many great Catholics on the Supreme Court is because that's the kind of papal uh, institution we have in this country. But the country is a Protestant idea. There's no getting around that, I think. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, except in as much as Protestantism is just a derivation of Catholicism. Well, yeah. You know, there are 30,000 different denominations and all but, but a derivation is, that Catholics used to burn people for. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then we, I don't know, we lost all of our kindling or something. But, but that, yes, I mean, there, the idea of the natural law is not, uh, was not something that was discovered in, in 1776, right. right? This is right. an idea, and it wasn't discovered by Martin Luther either. That's right. Just, yeah. You know, so the civilization was built 
by the Catholic Church. Not, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, and, the, the basis of the civilization was definitely... The yeah. And so, while, of course, America has some opposition to that. I mean, uh, I think what Schlesinger said, anti-Catholicism is the deepest bias in America. I mean, mm. the, some of my ancestors who are currently turning in their grave, the pilgrims, I mean, they were rather anti-Catholic, anti-Anglican too. Uh, but beneath all of that, there, you know, we are, that is the fundament that, that we're arguing from. And so the question of liberalism then, liberalism certainly does come out of Protestantism and there are some problems with liberalism and John Locke and the father of liberalism would probably not recognize what passes for liberalism today. And he'd probably be shocked and appalled by it, I think. You know, just read his letter concerning toleration, which you can read in, in Speechless or parts of it in Speechless. Uh, the, the question that I think you have to ask is, what is liberty? Because there's the modern liberal view that liberty is being able to do whatever you want when you want to do it. And there is the classical view, which is not just Catholic. It's not just Christian more broadly. It's pagan and it's the great statesmen in history have recognized that liberty is not the ability to do whatever you want to do, but the right to do what you ought to do. This is Lord Acton's distinction. Lord Acton, who are libertarians I think still like, uh, but that is, that is a shocking definition to the modern liberal sensibility on the left and on the right. But it, I think it's the only one that makes sense. And the, the example I keep going back to is the heroin addict. The heroin addict, especially in say Oregon or some one of these states with liberal drug laws, as long as he's got a couple bucks in his pocket that he can shoot up, he is the freest man in the world, right? He wants to shoot up. He gets to shoot up. He satisfies that appetite. Good. But he's not free. He's not free at all. He's a slave. Right. Right. <laughs> the free man is the one who tamps, the, the man who sins is a slave to sin, right? As a, who said that? <laughs> yeah. uh, the man who tamps down his, his base passions, the man who controls his appetite and brings those baser desires into discipline underneath his rational will, and the rational will mediates between the divine will and the appetite, that man is free in the classical understanding of it, in the Christian understanding of it, in the understanding of our founding fathers. And that just went away sometime in the 1960s. So when we, when we say, you know, freedom is bad or something, or liberalism is bad, we're not, we're not really saying freedom is bad or, or liberty is bad. We're saying this perversion of, of liberty is bad. And actually, it's, it's not even liberty. It's the opposite of liberty. Well, listen, I, I, this is where we agree, obviously. And this is the conversation we've had numerous times. The difference, I think, for me is that I'm, I'm not a libertarian. I'm a structuralist. Yeah. And by, what, by that, I mean what I feel we should be defending is the structures by which people are free. If yeah. people cannot live in those structures because they no longer have faith... To destroy those structures is not to win them back. Yeah. And, and so what I, what I feel is we should be in the, in the, on the mission of teaching people why we think the things we think and why we think the structures should be there and let them argue yeah. back. I'm, I'm willing no, to I, let right. communists talk. I'm willing to let Nazis talk. I'm a, I'm a real free yeah. speech. I'm a kind of a free speech fanatic. I, I'm not a purist about it, but I am a free speech fanatic when it comes to ideas. I'd yep. rather have somebody uh, attack my ideas with their bad ideas yeah. and hope that my good ideas win, then silence them. Sure. And I, I think uh, I love debate. I love yeah. going to a debating society, right. have a nice glass of some <laughs> yeah. whiskey or something. Mm. The issue is that this, is, this very often focuses on the schools and a third grade classroom is not a free marketplace of ideas. No. And, and education, getting back to that earlier point, because education is coercive, this does require the heavy hand of censorship. I'll, go, I'll use the C word, censorship. Yeah. We need to be able to go in. When, when the left says we need to expand the curricula 
You can't expand the curricula. There are only so many weeks. There are only so many books. When the left says we need to, or the, even parts of the right say we need to educate, not indoctrinate, the words mean the same damn thing. It's just one of them's good and one of them's bad. You need to teach somebody. If, the, if two plus two equals four and the student writes two plus two equals five, he needs to get a bad grade. He needs to be punished for that. Of right. But this is true in philosophy. This is true in ethics. This is true in history. This is true in literature, for goodness sakes. They're actually, we actually can know true and false and right and wrong. And I guess this is, my, my real argument is with our pal David French, right? David made this yes. point. He said, <laughs> yeah. he said uh, drag queen story hour is a blessing of liberty. One of the blessings of liberty. James Madison is just rolling in his grave hearing that. Yeah. It's not. It's not. It's, it's simply no. not. It, and, and, right. But his point is, if we say that these perverts can't twerk for little kids, they'll tell us we can't go to church. First of all, they're already doing that. Right. <laughs> but, but second of all, if, you, if we really have adopted such a radical skepticism and we've bought into this canard that there is a, a neutral playing ground in secular liberalism where we can debate things, if we really can't decide between drag queen story hour and going to church, then we can't govern ourselves because the ability to say some things are true, some things are false, some things are right, some things are wrong, the ability to have what Buckley called epistemological optimism, to just know some basic things and have them settled, that is required for self-government. And, and if, if you lose that, even though it feels like a limit, I think you lose freedom too. Yeah. Well, I think, listen, it's a strong argument. I think that there is a difference between somebody running a private drag queen story hour and having it in a li library. And one of the things about David French is he can't tell the difference. Uh, you know, that, I mean, if parents choose to take their kids to that, I'm not sure uh, whether stopping that is actually the right way to go. I do think, though, I do think the question, what we're really arguing about is the means, because yeah. we, are, we agree, we agree on the, what is the right and the good. Yes. It's how you bring that back into the world. And I, th I really think the left did it by taking over the, the cultural institutions. And I think we have to take them back. I, t I totally agree. I guess my only, I don't think the disagreement is you think it ought to be culture and I think it ought to be politics or government or something. I think the disagreement is you think it ought to be culture and I think it ought to be culture and government. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just can't think of anybody in the government I want to make those decisions. I got, me. I, I, we got to elect I, me. Let's oh, do that. I, I would vote for you. <laughs> we got to stop there. Read the book because it's a fascinating argument. Speechless, controlling words, controlling minds, and it's well done. And it would be on the New York Times bestseller list if they weren't a bunch of lying scum. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Knowles, it's great to see you. It's always good to talk to you. Great to see you. We should have a cigar after this. Let's do it. So I was talking to the guys at Carnivore Trading to get them to explain to me what it is. And these are guys who really know about investing. And they're tired of listening to Wall Street tell you that just getting a measly few percent on your investment is a good return. It's not. Trade, they sometimes tell you trading is so complex you need a financial advisor. Uh, these guys say you don't. All you need, they say, is carnivore trading where these guys are crushing it. Even when the market is tough, carnivore trading is an anonymous team of elite strategists. They're legends among Wall Street heavy hitters, and they've gone a bit rogue. For the first time, they're inviting everyday folks like us to see and mirror their explosive trades. If it sounds too good to be true, Carnivore will let you see the trades they're making right now for two weeks free. Go to GetOurTrades.com and use promo code CLAVEN for two free weeks. And if you join, you'll get Carnivore's industry-leading promise that you'll generate three times your fees after your annual paid subscription, or you'll get a 100% refund. Go to GetOurTrades.com, promo code CLAVEN, GetOurTrades.com, promo code CLAVEN. See the website for guarantee terms and conditions. Past performance is not a guarantee of future earnings. These are the guys who know the secret to investing, which is how you spell Clavin. It is K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy 
In a time where many see oppression as the only history worth telling, The Daily Wire is here to remind you that the freest country in the world was built on the backs of legends who sacrificed their own lives for the future of America. That's why Daily Wire started a new podcast to illuminate the heroism of our brave ancestors. It's called America's Forgotten Heroes. And today's episode focuses on the pioneer of blind flying and recipient of the Medal of Honor, Jimmy Doolittle, who thundered into the Tokyo sky seemingly out of nowhere to lead an airborne raid designed to avenge the attack on Pearl Harbor. Standing at only five foot six, Jimmy Doolittle's smarts and courage towered over others, and he revolutionized piloting as we once knew it. His name may be overshadowed by the raid he led, but it's worth remembering, he wasn't just a pilot, he was a man who changed the world. Subscribe now to America's Forgotten Heroes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you might listen, because the second episode is out today, Friday, July 2nd, and one new action-packed episode drops each day through the 4th of July weekend and into next week for a total of seven episodes. Because too many heroes never receive the recognition they deserve, and sharing their stories with you on this Independence Day holiday is our small tribute to their heroism. And if you like what you hear, leave a five-star review and help share these incredible stories. Thanks for listening, and thank you to the heroes that made such an excellent podcast possible. One of the things uh, people say to me a lot, one of the complaints I get about this show is that I talk about God so much. Stop harping on God. Why do you have to talk about God all the time? You know, I can be a good person and I can be a good conservative without God. Nothing so great. I, I totally get it. And yes, you can be a good person, a wonderful person. And there are many awful people who believe in God, many good people who don't believe in God, uh, many good conservatives who don't believe in God, and many people who are not very good conservatives who do. My only point about this is your philosophy doesn't make sense. If you're a good person who, who doesn't believe in God, your philosophy doesn't make sense. And the problem with having a philosophy that doesn't make sense is that under pressure, it collapses. And that's some of the stuff we're seeing in our our culture today is people who can't defend their positions because they don't know why they hold them. One of the things about God is that there is no objective good, moral good without God. And, the, you know, and we, we do believe, no matter how we talk ourselves out of it when we're in philosophy class in school or on CNN, we believe in an objective good. And you have to look at it from the negative point of view. You have to think, can it ever be good <clears throat> to torture a child for your own personal enjoyment? Is there any series of systems, uh, series of circumstances where to torture a child for your own personal enjoyment uh, can be a, a good thing and not an evil thing? If every single human being on earth except presumably the child thought it was a good thing, still the child would be in the right and every single other person would be in the wrong. Morality is not actually relative. It's simply that we cannot approach it completely. We approach it by half measures. And in order for there to be something good, it has to be closer to an ultimate good, right? There has to be a direction leading to good and a direction leading away from good. And that ultimate good just can't be a thing. It's not a big statue saying, I am the good. It has to be a consciousness because good is a conscious choice. It has to be a living consciousness that can choose, that is free to choose, because good is always something free, is, uh, uh, is always a free, the free conscious choice. A tornado may destroy a million things, but it's not evil. So good is always a conscious choice. And that's why I think if you believe that something, that there is such a thing as objective good, you believe in God, whether you know it or not. And if knowing it gives you more power because you can make the arguments you have to make when the pressure is on. Without God, you know, 
man is in relationship with nothing but himself. There's nothing to choose. He has nothing to choose. His desires are sovereign. He's just a piece of clay. You know, so it's whatever the clay wants, that's that's the object of the exercise. And that's kind of the underlying assumption of the left. Leftism is a materialist philosophy. We believe that we are in relationship with something. And the reason our culture is, is stagnant right now, it's terribly, terribly stagnant because we've already done all the bad guy stories we can tell. We've told The Sopranos. We've told uh, Breaking Bad. We've got all the bad guys that we can possibly do. And that's kind of interesting in the world, but we can't, we no longer know what the good is because we no longer know who God is. And the thing about having no belief in God is that you only can tell one story. You can only tell the story of how absurd everything is. And that story can be told well. Waiting for Godot is a wonderful play about that story, but it's still the same story every single time. The diversity of storytelling comes from individuals, unique individuals, striving toward this good that they see in themselves, but they either can't reach or can start to reach. And that's what makes stories stories. And that's why there's a million stories, a million endless stories to tell, because there are a million kinds of people, endless, infinite numbers of people. But if all those people are just pieces of clay, the only story you can tell about them is how absurd there is. So I was watching this show, Bo Burnham's Inside on Netflix, uh, and it's very popular. And Bo Burnham is a very, very talented uh, comedy writer and satirist. Uh, really talented, and the show is very entertaining. Uh, he was a comedian. Burnham was a comedian who has so much anxiety, so many anxiety attacks, he couldn't perform anymore. So he stopped performing, went away for five years. And at the end of five years, he thought, you know, I think I'm saner than I was. I think I'm, I've kind of come around to being uh, stronger mentally than I was. I'll go back into performing. And then the pandemic hit, and he was forced to stay in his room for a year. And so he wrote over the course of a year, Alone inside this room, he did he did this really quite uh, creative performance of his songs and his comedy called Inside because he's spending the year inside. And he's really talented and it's an impressive and entertaining show, uh, especially the, the satirical parts of it. And I'm going to criticize the show. Uh, he's very woke and he's very left wing in his politics. But so what? So that's his his politics. He, you can make a good show with that. But still, there is something about the show that is that one story that we hear over and over again. Now, the satire is excellent. He has a song, which is the masterpiece of the show, called Welcome to the Internet. The whole show is, of course, he's living online because he's stuck inside. And here is his depiction of the Internet. Show us pictures of your children. Tell us every thought you think. Start a rumor, buy a broomer, send a death threat to a boomer. Or DM a girl and groomer, do a zoomer, find a tumor in your Here's a healthy breakfast option. You should kill your mom. Here's why women never you here's how you can build a bomb which power ranger are you take this quirky quiz obama sent the immigrants to vaccinate your kids could i interest you in everything all of the time now that's a great line can i interest you in everything all of the time because everything all of the time is nothing and without god without a moral framework and you cannot have a moral framework without god i know you think some of you think you can but you can't believe me Without a moral framework, there's no distinction. There's no distinction between a quirky Power Rangers quiz and instructions on how to make a bomb. It's all about what, what, he, what take your choice, take your choice. It's, you're interested in everything all of the time. It, it really is good. That's really good satire and really funny. And his music is not the most original. It's a little bit repetitive, but still uh, the writing is good. It's strong. And I just found it interesting. He did another song. The other really good song is called uh, White Woman's Instagram, where he describes all the beautiful things that are on a white woman's Instagram page. Here's a little bit of that. An avocado. Say 
that's, that's really good stuff. Very observant, you know, and again. But the thing about satire, and I do satire on the show, I open the show with satire, is it, it, it's essentially negative. In satire, you are making fun of a system that isn't working or a person who's doing something stupid. It's like critical theory, right? It's like critical theory. You can always criticize, but underneath that criticism, there is an assu- a positive assumption that you have something better to offer. And if you don't start to offer that system, that something better, uh, then really your satire is kind of uh, complaining. It's complaining. If you if you have nothing better to offer, your satire is just complaining. It's just fetching. And and uh, the problem with this show, with the show inside, is once this, that the satire is excellent. Every time he describes the internet, it's just terrific. But once he starts to get into his own self-reflection, it becomes the same old, same old thing. So he does one thing where he talks about the fact that he is he does a a song, and then he comments on the song, and then he comments on himself commenting on the song, and it just becomes this uh, infinite regress, a house of mirrors. Here's a little bit of that. It's pretty unlikable that I that I feel this need, this desperate need to be seen as uh, intelligent. And the, the video's ending here. Hey, everybody. See, it's and funny to cut right on. Look, I'm very confused. See, I'm very, very confused because I'm staring at myself. I don't know what I'm looking at. What? And I'm starting to catch up. Now I'm, I'm realizing what's going on, that, right? and uh, yeah, now I'm now, deciding to react right. okay, so to the reaction. reaction. Without God, you're in a dialogue with yourself all the time, constantly in a dialogue with yourself, constantly in that infinite regress, uh, hall of mirrors. And you know, one of the things about the show that really moved me is he reminded me, he's about 30, he reminded me of myself at that age when I was suicidal, uh, and uh, and I think that uh, I, I worry about the kid, I actually do. Uh, he's you can't be in a dialogue without God. You can't be in a dialogue with anything but yourself. You can't ever know what reality is. You can't ever say, oh, yes, I will now stop. Everything is analysis. Everything is breaking things down. And like criticism, like critical theory, everything can always be broken down into smaller and smaller parts. You know, intelligent people, intellectual people have the same reaction to their intellects that a lot of have guys have to their penis. Basically, it is a source of self-esteem and pleasure to them, so they begin to think it's a lot more important than it is, okay? Your intellect is a wonderful thing, and hopefully your penis is a wonderful thing, but, but it is not the center of the universe. There is a wholeness to be had when you let analysis go, when you stop analyzing things, and when you start to experience them as a whole human being because you are in contact with the image of yourself, which is on the big screen, which is God, the creation of yourself and the purpose uh, that you are, you were created for. You know, th- this, this idea that when you have nothing, when you're not in dialogue with anything, that other people start to define you. Not only are you in this infinite regress, that you are defined by what other people think of you. And he, he makes this point, Bo Burnham makes this point inside that he's living for the laughter of others, for the, for the reactions that he gets from others because they kind of define him. They give him life and he has no, you know, he worries, oh, am I making the world a better place with my comedy? But it doesn't really matter because as he says, I want all eyes on me. So he's constantly criticizing himself, but he has nothing else to offer. You know, there was a story in the New York Times, just uh, New York Times, a former newspaper. Uh, and there was a story in it about people who don't want the pandemic to end because they don't want to go out again. Uh, and there was one guy in it who was a, um, he's a black gay guy and he is married to a white gay guy, and he doesn't want to go out again, and here he explains why. My husband is white, and we often uh, have conversations with folks that we meet on the street, 
and I become invisible. I go into a market and I'm either ignored totally or followed and watched. That's a microaggression. <laughs> it's a grown man. It's a grown man worrying about a microaggression, you know? <laughs> it's, like, it's like there are people in this world, seriously, there are people in this world hoping that they don't get macheted uh, by a raving uh, racist mob tomorrow. Uh, and he's worried be- that when he goes to this supermarket, people talk to his uh, his husband, uh, you know, because because he has nothing with which to define himself but other people. And Burnham has this stuff, too. And it's interesting that it's interesting to me that, for instance, Bo Burnham never questions. He never questions whether he should be locked inside, whether he should maybe go out and defy the lockdown orders. He never questions global warming. He never questions uh, systemic racism. He never questions anything except his own purpose for being, because that's the thing he can't understand. So all of his self-reflection, while all of his satire is excellent, his music is excellent, his self-reflection is adolescent and uh, and second rate. He has one thing about suicide, and he's written a song about suicide. Why don't you just kill yourself, basically? Uh, and when he says he starts the second half of the show by saying, don't kill yourself. And this is what he says. And if you're out there and you're struggling with, you know, suicidal thoughts and, and you want to kill yourself, I just want to tell you, don't. OK, can you not, please? Just don't. All right. Quit it with the. But really, don't kill yourself. You don't want to because. There are people that love you. That's not true, necessarily. But there could be people that love you in the future. And just don't. I've had people close to me kill themselves. And I'll be honest with you, didn't love it. Didn't love that. So just don't. He can't even come up with a reason to live. And he's broadcast, He's showing his picture of himself on a, picture, on a T-shirt worn by himself, looking incredibly uh, bored and depressed by this monologue. You know, it, it obviously reminds you of Hamlet asking himself to be or not to be. And Hamlet's only reason to live is because he fears that something after death uh, might be worse than what he's in. And that's why he doesn't kill himself. But the whole point about Hamlet, the whole point about Hamlet is he's one character in this panoply of characters that Shakespeare has created, each one of them in a different relationship with the moral universe, Hamlet in the Bo Burnham relationship. That's, as Shakespeare knew, without God, that's the only story. Hamlet is the only story you can tell, and you have to tell it over and over and over again. And that was my problem with Inside. I enjoyed it. I think it's worth watching. I recommend it. The guy is tremendously talented, and his satire is really, really good. But because he is of this generation, that has a default atheism, that he really hasn't thought it through, that has a default atheism. He has nothing to say about himself because he has no self. And that's the other thing about there being no God. There's not only no moral world without God, there's no inner world, no true inner world without God. And you have nowhere to go except deeper and deeper into your empty self. Normally, I don't mind the fact that I'm losing my hearing because I don't care what anybody else has to say. But when I'm watching movies, it's a little tough. I like action movies and you can't hear the dialogue. I turn the dialogue up loud enough to hear it. The explosions blow me out of my chair. But 
MD hearing aid is an FDA-registered digital hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. The average price of a hearing aid in America is over $2,400 a pair, but the Volt Plus model is just $299.99 each. So that's $300 when you buy a pair that's 90% less than the ordinary hearing aid. MD hearing aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who saw how many of his patients needed hearing aids but couldn't afford them. He made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. The sleek design fits well. No one will even know you're wearing it. Plus, it's rechargeable with battery life that lasts up to 30 hours. If you forget to take your hearing aids off in the shower, don't worry. The Volt Plus is waterproof in up to three feet of water. It's time to reclaim your life from hearing loss. Go to mdhearingaid.com and use promo code CLAVEN to get their buy one, get one, $299.99 each offer. Plus, they're adding a free extra charging case, a $100 value, just for listeners of The Andrew Claven Show. So head to mdhearingaid.com and use our promo code CLAVEN, or you can even call them at 1-800-614-3051. That's 1-800-614-3051. But be prepared in case they ask you how to spell CLAVEN. You want to know, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. All right, all good things must come to an end. That includes your trouble and pain and anxiety because it's time for the mailbag. I'm concerned that you guys are asking me questions. Yeah! <laughs> Joe Biden's like the gift that keeps on giving. From Patrick, uh, hello, Andrew. Great interview with Richard Cooper. All right, we're still getting a lot of letters about Richard Cooper. An interesting interview with a, ma um, a man's coach. Guy tells you how to handle those tricky women. Uh, he says... The letter says, thank you for taking him to account for his portrayal of women as mechanical and interchangeable. Obviously, there are many different types of unique women with unique talents and personalities. I disagree with how you premised your question to Mr. Cooper when you said that your wife chose to marry you uh, when you were a starving, worthless artist. He says, I've read your book, The Great Good Thing. You may have been a poor artist, but you were still an alpha male. You were obviously a dynamic, assertive, aggressive, intense, and intelligent person. I like this letter. Uh, and your wife surely saw that. You may have been artistic, but you were not a passive, submissive beta male. You said yourself that as a young man, you were difficult, headstrong, and argumentative, regularly getting into fistfights. I, I think you give Cooper's angle short shrift when you say it doesn't resonate, that women do, in fact, want uh, alpha males. All right. Let me, let me answer this. I want to give my point of view on this, and I, I don't want to—I'm not— attacking Richard Cooper, but I do. It's my show. I get to give my point of view about it all. First of all, the question that I asked in that case was about money. Uh, Richard was saying that women want money. And I said, my wife married me when I didn't have any money. And in fact, thought I would never make any money. I remember saying to her once, uh, you know, looking at a very nice house and saying, well, I'd like to live in a place like that someday. And she said, we'll never have a place like that. You're an artist. <laughs> and, I said, and I actually turned to her and I said, oh, yeah, we will. No, that, that's ridiculous. Um, and so only, only I thought I would ever make money. But my real attitude toward this, my, my true feeling about this, is that thinking about alpha males is for beta males. Alpha male is a category of, and beta male are categories of gorillas. There are so many different kinds of people. And they are obviously women in general like strong men and men in general like gentle tender women. I mean, that is in, in the male-female divide. That's what we're looking for, I think, from each other, something to, to answer, to fulfill us and complete us. Uh, and I think those are the things that people like. Strong males, that's a, 
you know, that's fine. But take, if you remember the movie Apollo 13, where they have to save these astronauts in a damaged uh, ship, and they call in these little dweebs, you know, these guys who obviously got beat up and bullied in high school, and they're little guys, bald guys, you know, with glasses and their stooped shoulders, and they give them this impossible task to do to save these guys' lives, and they go out and they put together, you know, all these crazy Jerry Reed contraptions, and they save their lives. Is that an alpha male or a beta male? You know, how do you know? Because gorillas don't have that category of men, you know, and uh, or, or people like me who don't want to tell other people what to do, but don't want to be told by anybody what to do. I mean, that's a different category. I don't think they have those in gorillas, too. They have the guy who takes all the women and the people who don't get any of the women. That's the way that works. So I just think this kind of cat. I think what is happening in things like this is that people uh, are trying to systematize romantic life to allay their fears of the risks that you take in a romantic life. And I thought Richard made some absolutely good points about the ways the law may sometimes favor women to the point where they up the risks of uh, looking for romance beyond what is tolerable to many men. And I think that's a perfectly fair um, point of view. But this kind of mechanistic, uh, animalistic view of human beings is not my view. And I think that what you're dealing with is individuals and taking your chances in life, uh, no matter what the odds, because I think love is worth uh, taking a risk for. Um, so that's, that's my ultimate statement on it. I mean, that's the, my point of view. And the point of view uh, about me is that I, I am what I am, basically. And my wife liked it. And I'm incredibly grateful that she did, though I think she must be, there must be something wrong with her. Uh, from Brandon, my question is in regard to Christianity. I became a Christian roughly three years ago and have worked hard to strengthen my faith. I am by nature a very skeptical person, which has presented many obstacles for me along the way with being confident in my beliefs. The biggest hurdle that I can't seem to quite get around is the idea that there are people who practice other religions, Islam to be specific, that feel just as confident in their religion as we do in ours. Understanding that both of these cannot be true, how do you gain confidence in the Gospels and in your faith more specifically, knowing that others out there feel just as convicted? I've never understood this argument. I've heard it a lot, uh, but I've never actually understood why the fact that other people think that God is other than I think he is should damage my faith unless, unless they have a spectacular argument for why they think what they think. And I have never come across that at all. They're wrong. They believe something. This is what I think. I think they believe something that is incorrect. Plenty of people believe plenty of things that are incorrect. Uh, socialists believe that socialism will make life better. Uh, communists and fascists believe that their ideas will make life better. Why do I believe in a democratic republic when they believe in their ideas so strongly? Because their arguments are bad. Their arguments are bad and they do not conform to history and what we've learned about human life and what makes human life thrive and what makes human life good. And the same is true of uh Christianity and I and if since you're being specific about Islam, I would say, you know, where do you see an Islamic culture uh, that has reached the heights of uh, success, beauty, truth, uh, even free, freedom and even happiness that Christian culture has reached? I mean, Christianity has proved itself over the years. If it hadn't, uh, maybe it would not still be here in a country where people are free to choose. Because remember, a lot of in a lot of Muslim countries, you're not free to become an apostate. So I don't understand why the mistaken beliefs of other people should bother me at all. You know, I, I think that's that's just part of life that people believe different things. Uh, but, you know, if it troubles you, then I guess the thing is to engage with their arguments and then engage with the arguments of wise Christians, why they believe what they believe. Um, 
From Jacob, uh, I was watching the latest episode of Backstage and was moved by your answer about the left infecting video games. You perfectly described how video games instilled values in me before I was even interested in politics. Um, Gamers are definitely aware of the left trying to push their woke nonsense into our games, but it's kind of like Hollywood where you fail upwards. Game journalists love the wokeness, and the people who make the games get promoted despite the backlash from fans. Uh, The Daily Wire is pushing back in entertainment with movies like Run, Hide, Fight and the Clarence Thomas documentary. Do you think a similar strategy needs Needs to be applied to game ground in video games. Yeah, look, uh, you cannot oppose the left without opposing them. I mean, this is the thing. They are aggressive. They mean it. They're serious. They want to uh, destroy everything that uh, we hold dear. Uh, you have to assert what we hold dear. Uh, it is not good enough. It is not good enough to say, uh, you know, we are going to complain about their creating video games. Video games, science fiction, some of the genres are places where uh, people still occasionally can speak without being woke. It's getting very, very hard. Uh, every time I get a book copy edited now, uh, some copy editor will say, well, you describe this person as coffee colored and slaves used to pick coffee. So, you know, and I just stat, you know, which is editorial speak for leave it the way it is. Uh, we have to fight back against that. And that means taking risks. And that makes means taking chances. That makes t- taking hits from the journalists and putting your faith in the people and putting your faith in the audience. And you de- you're definitely right uh, that we have to do that. Uh, or else we're going to lose even this last bastion of culture where we still have some kind of voice. And I think we should be pushing back like The Daily Wire is doing, and we should do it in video games for sure. All right, I'm going to stop there. I'm out of time, but but I will be back. You, not so sure. You're entering the Clavenless week. There'll be darkness, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Uh, oh, oh, my God, I can't even begin. Even if I described it, you would be so debilitated by simply my description of what is coming uh, that you would be heartbroken to think that it's not until next Friday when I will be back, but I will. And hopefully some of you, one or two of you, will make it and crawl through that darkness uh, to the light. And I will be here with The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by... Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. The Department of Energy pushes racial science. A squish Republican takes a spot on the January 6th commission. And... Speechless becomes a number one national bestseller, all thanks to you. Thank you very much for that. Go check it all out on The Michael Knowles Show.